Welcome back to our study of 1 Timothy together. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4 this morning. And we're going to pray for our time in the Word of God. Let's pray. Lord, it's a wonderful thing that we get to worship You in the splendor of holiness, Lord. As a people who have been made clean by the blood of Christ. And Lord Jesus, we thank You that You have saved us to the uttermost, Lord. That You have removed all of our sins from us, and You bore them in Your body on the tree. And the wonderful thing, Lord, that You give us is that we get to worship You today as completely forgiven in the splendor of holiness. And so, Lord Jesus, we give You praise today. Praise to Your name. You're the God of salvation. You're the God that saves sinners. Lord, we want to come with thanks today as we gather around Your Word that You're a God who has revealed Himself. Lord, we want to specifically thank You for these words of 1 Timothy. This church order letter that You've breathed out, God, that You've given us Your wisdom from heaven of how to order ourselves as a household of God. Lord Jesus, You're the One who stands by Your servant and strengthens them that the message will be fully proclaimed. And that's what I ask for this morning, Lord. Your mighty strength to proclaim Your Word. God, we pray, Lord, in dependence on Your Holy Spirit, that You would help us from heaven be a people not only who hears Your Word, and not only who understands Your Word. Help us to obey. Help us to obey, Lord. Help us to hearken to Your Word, and even tremble at Your Word this morning. Come feed us, Lord Jesus. This is our prayer. In Your name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. And one of the things I want to mention to you this morning is that the great Protestant reformer, Martin Luther, he famously noted that the number one mark of the church of Jesus Christ was the Word of God. Was the Word of God. Luther quotes... He says, this is the principal item Christian people are recognized by their possession of the Holy Word of God. Wherever this Word is preached, believed, professed, and lived, we should have no doubt that the true church is there. The number one mark of the church is the Word of God. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul has been reminding us of in 1 Timothy. We, if we remember back just to the end of chapter 3, one of the names that the Apostle Paul gives to the church of Jesus Christ is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. That's what we are, Grace Community Church. We're a pillar and the, and the buttress of the truth. And unless we have the Word of God at this local church, we have nothing. 
We have nothing. It's the number one mark of the people of God. And Paul knows this. And Paul also knows that the primary way that this Word of God will be heralded in the church of Jesus Christ is through the office of pastors, elders, and overseers. And so in our text this morning, the Apostle Paul is going to give us a God-breathed job description of a pastor. God-breathed portrait of pastoral ministry. And we're going to read this text together. And before we do, I want to give you this final reminder that although this text today is primarily, it applies to pastors in the church of Jesus Christ, it is not unimportant for anyone in the room this morning. It is not unimportant for anyone in the room this morning. Every disciple of Jesus needs to have biblical expectations for their pastors. You need to be oriented biblically of what your pastors are supposed to be doing in the church of Jesus Christ. And just one of the reasons why is because you have no guarantee that you will always belong to this church. In fact, we live in a transient world, and and every single time we add new members at Grace Community Church, we're releasing members as they move to other places. And one of the things that Ryan and I have as your pastors is a great desire to establish you with these biblical expectations that no matter where you land on planet earth, you know what you're looking for in a healthy local church. And not only do you need biblical expectations, there are also general principles in our passage today that apply to every disciple of Jesus that wants to be a good servant of the Lord. And that's the heart that we want to read our text with this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 4, and we're going to begin in verse 6. This is the Word of God. To Grace Community Church this morning. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Verse 9, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. 
Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Again, this is the Word of God to Grace Community Church this morning. And I'll give you a warning on the front end. Those words are the only words that you will hear over the next hour that are inerrant, that are God-breathed from heaven without error. This is the Word of God. So as we walk through this passage, I want you to notice first that this passage begins and ends with the same theme. They're like bookends of our passage this morning. If we can understand the bookends, we're well on our way to understanding this text of Holy Scripture. Both the beginning and the end, Timothy is charged to do two things. Live and preach the Word of God. Live and preach the Word of God. Let's start in verse 6. The Apostle Paul tells Timothy, his true son in the faith, he begins verse 6, If you put these things before the brothers. If you put these things before the brothers. Now what are the these things that the Apostle Paul is mentioning? And this is rather simple. This, this is everything the Apostle Paul has been laying down in the book of 1 Timothy, in the letter of 1 Timothy. It's the gospel doctrine that he's been laying out for his true son in the faith. And Timothy's job is to, is to lay these things down, to point these things out to the brothers. These things. Later in that same verse, verse 6, Paul calls these things the words of the faith and the good doctrine. The words of the faith and the good doctrine. This is a broadness that Timothy is to take that apostolic teaching, that apostolic gospel, and he is to relentlessly get it in front of the people of God. He's to teach the Word. Preach the Word of God. And yet in the same verse, verse 6, we also, that Tim, we also see that Timothy is supposed to be trained himself in the same words of the faith. In other words, the same message that Timothy is preaching, that same message is supposed to have an effect on him, is to train him as well. He's to, he's to be shaped by the Word of God and, and herald and announce the Word of God. He's to live the truth and to preach the truth. And we can see those same two themes at the end of our passage in verse 16 with that phrase that Timothy, Pastor Timothy, is exhorted to keep watch over two things. Not just one, two things. His life and his doctrine, the teaching. His life and the teaching. And if you remember our introduction to this letter of 1 Timothy, you know that that theme is actually broader than our text this morning. It's actually the bookends of the entire letter of 1 Timothy. 
that Paul is taking great pains in this letter to marry together two things that are often divorced. Holy living and sound doctrine. Holy living and sound doctrine. This is how he says it at the very beginning. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, he tells Timothy, our, The aim of our charge is love. The aim of our charge is love. And that's one of the things that we're called to remember about the truth, about the apostolic teaching, is it's not just to make our heads full of doctrine. It's meant to produce men and women who love God and love neighbor. The aim of our charge is love. Is love. Paul is telling Timothy that this truth, this gospel, it really does something in the life and in the heart. And towards the end of the letter, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3, he says the same thing, just in a little bit different way. He announces the teaching, 1 Timothy 6, 3, that accords with godliness. The teaching that accords with godliness. So you have these things married together in the Word of God. And Paul wants Timothy to never forget it. Holy living, godliness, and sound doctrine. Not one or the other. you got to have both. you got to be right when you speak about the Bible, but that's not enough. you got to live out the truth of the Gospel. Watch your life. Watch the teaching. And so Paul's main point in this passage is that pastors in the church of Jesus Christ, they have to not only talk the talk, they have to walk the walk. They have to live and teach the truth of God's Word. Live and teach the truth of God's Word. And so with that um, banner hanging over this text, holy living and sound doctrine, we're going to work through this passage under three headings this morning. We're going to see the pastor as an example, as an example to the flock. We're going to see the pastor as an expositor of the Word of God. And then finally, we're going to see the pastor as an evangelist to the world. An example, an expositor, and an evangelist. So the first thing I want you to see is I want to help us this morning get oriented into exactly what Timothy was called to do in the church at Ephesus. And I want us to remember that Timothy was sent, and we see this in chapter 1 as soon as verse 3, that Timothy was sent into this church and into this city on an authoritative mission for Jesus Christ. The the language that Paul uses in chapter 1, verse 3, is he tells Timothy to charge certain persons. That's a military term that Timothy sent to authoritatively charge, don't teach this other doctrine anymore. He sent on an authoritative mission. And even in our text this morning, I want you to notice in verse 11, the Apostle Paul, he picks up this same theme. He tells Timothy, command and teach these things. Command and teach these things. This is, an, this is authoritative language. And I want to try to get us in Timothy's shoes this morning as we walk through, just as review, as we review the first three chapters of this letter, I want to try to try to get us oriented to exactly what Timothy was called to do 
without giving anybody a panic attack this morning. Because as we understand it, this is dangerous stuff that Timothy was called to do. He was called to a really hard task in the church at Ephesus. And there's a reason why, as we read these pastoral epistles, that the Apostle Paul goes back over and over again to these young pastors, and he tells them, don't give up, press forward. Why? Because they're doing some hard stuff. They're doing some hard stuff. They're being tempted to throttle back. They're in, they're in a really difficult situation, and yet they must deal with it authoritatively. Authoritatively. I want to help us get oriented this morning. Chapter 1, in the introduction to this letter, in that phrase, charge certain persons, chapter 1, verse 3, Timothy was sent to tell some in the church at Ephesus, likely older men in the church at Ephesus, and likely elders in the church of Ephesus. His job was to identify these men who were teaching other doctrine, and he was sent by the Apostle Paul to say, Stop it. Don't teach it anymore. You're done. You're not teaching that here anymore. It was an authoritative word in this specific setting. And that's chapter 1. And in case that wasn't hard enough, we come to chapter 3, and Timothy is, is instructed in these qualifications for the office of elder and the office of deacon. And here's the thing we need to understand. There's a reason why the Apostle Paul is selecting the topics that he's selecting. These are problems in the church at Ephesus. That the church at Ephesus has unqualified deacons and unqualified elders. And Timothy is sent into this church and guess what his job is? His job is likely to single out these men who are unqualified in office, and he's the one that has to tap them on the shoulder and say, oh, by the way, you don't meet the, the apostolic qualifications for this office. Now, who wants to sign up for that job this morning? Who wants to deliver that message of, sir, you may have been an elder for a year, maybe two years. But I just want to tell you, you're not, you're not qualified. I'm sorry. You're not qualified. Apart from the grace of God in a pastor's life, the pastor's running for a rock to hide under. This is not something that you sign up for. This is hard stuff. And that's chapter 3. Brett laid that passage out for us several weeks ago. And listen, if that wasn't hard enough, we come to chapter 2. Chapter 2, where the pastor begins to deal with these um, gender roles going wild in the church at Ephesus. You know, and we try to decide as you, we split this up to teach this book together, who's going to take this passage, you know? And so we decided to give it to the Moldovan. You know, he's going to be out of here in a couple months. We'll give it to him um, to rebuke, you know, th these gender roles in the church. And so, no, Paul did... A, a great job of laying that out for us, that, that there is a fittingness of what it means to be a man and a, or a woman who follows Jesus Christ. But, but think about Timothy's job, that most likely he's having to deal with these aggressive, immodest women in the church of Ephesus. And he's having to tap them on the shoulder and talk to them about their immodest dress. 
and they're out of bounds and trying to take up the leadership in the church. And again, who is raising your hand to deliver that message? And yet this is his, his apostolic charge that he sent to deal with these problems with authority. So that was chapter 2 that Paul laid out for us several weeks ago. And listen, if that wasn't enough, we get to chapter 4. Chapter 4. And Jake laid this out for us just two weeks back. How would you like to be Timothy? Okay, The beginning of chapter 4, to tap the man in the church that's leading the Tuesday morning Bible study, or the woman in the church that's leading the Thursday afternoon Bible study about singleness and dietary laws. And your charge is not only that you have to tell people that they're wrong and misguided, you have to tell them that they got their doctrine from the pit of hell. That this is doctrine of demons that has no place in the church of Jesus. And again, do you understand the authoritative role that he's given in this church? Who wants to sign up for this stuff? And yet this is his task in the church at Ephesus. You see, he's not sent to the city of Ephesus to give these lectures and just give you something to think about, an alternative way to read Scripture. He's sent with authority to command no departures from the apostolic doctrine. Command and teach these things. And, and just, just on the face of it, we already know this stuff, what he's doing... High probability of conflict. High probability of conflict. And then let's add one more thing right in there. And this is like gas in a match in verse 12. If that wasn't enough, okay, we find out in verse 12 that the one doing the commanding and the charging in Ephesus is a youth. Is a youth. He says in verse 12, let no one despise your youth. The Apostle Paul knows that Timothy's been sent on this authoritative mission. And he also knows that some will have a tendency for no good reason to despise Timothy on the basis of his youth. Okay, Paul knows this tendency in this culture and in the church's that he's dealing with. He knows that the tendency for some, especially, listen, to those who are being exhorted and corrected by this young pastor, he knows that they're going to have a great tendency not to see him as Pastor Timothy and hear what he says. They're going to have a tendency to see him as little Timothy, little Timmy, and pat him on the head and disregard his message. And Paul says, let no one despise you for your youth. Let no one despise you for your youth. He actually writes these same words to other churches. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 11, let no one despise him. He's talking about Timothy again in the church at Corinth. And so Paul is aware of these cultural tendencies of sending a man even, I mean, especially a young man into this authoritative role that this idea of youth and age is going to be a tripping block for some in the church. And so he gives them instruction in verse 12 of how to deal with this tendency in the church 
of Jesus Christ. Let no one despise your youth. And the way that Paul uh, deals with this problem is he turns to Timothy and and he basically says this, listen, don't give anybody a reason to despise you. Don't give anybody a reason to discount your message. And he, he exhorts this young pastor to live a godly life. The language of verse 12 is to set the believers an example. And so one of the things that we need to be aware of is there's a right way and a wrong way to uh, make sure people don't ignore you. There's a right way to do that, and there's a wrong way to do that. And the wrong way is to beat your chest and say, listen to me, submit to me, I am your leader, I'm in charge. That's the wrong way. And the right way is this, that Paul exhorts Timothy to live an exemplary life that commands respect from others. That, that if they're going to despise him over this trivial thing, that he give them no reason, no legitimate reason to cast him to the side. Be an example to the believers. Be an example to the believers. You see this strategy, two strategies of you know, making sure people don't, don't ignore you. Sometimes you see this play out in the corporate world where someone of relatively young age is is moved into a a, a position of leadership corporately, Uh, whether that's mid-management or executive management. And and there's basically two kinds of people that handle um, that responsibility. There's one who the authority gets to their head and they walk around beating their chest saying, I'm your boss, do what I say. I'm your boss, do what I say. And then there's another type of person that lives an exemplary life that commands respect. And that's what the Apostle Paul is charging Timothy to do in verse 11. He's basically saying, show them the power of Jesus Christ at work in your life. They're tempted to set you aside. Show them the resurrection power of Jesus Christ at work in your character. In your character. Timothy is to be this comprehensive example to the body of Christ. Comprehensive in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And the pastoral office always demands example. Always. Always. The nature of the work that is to be done always has to be undergirded by example, godliness, holy living. Always. Always. So Timothy, <clears throat> Timothy is to give the church no legitimate reason to despise his ministry. He's to be a godly pastor. Listen to Robert Murray McChain. Robert, Robert Murray McChain. Young pastor, died before he was 30. Yet he left a great impact on the church of Jesus. And he said this. He said, the greatest need of my people is my personal holiness. My personal holiness. And a pastor in the church of Jesus Christ has to feel that in his bones that the greatest need of the church that he serves is not awesome sermons, but holy living. That's the men that Jesus Christ honors. Godly men. Not hypocrites who live one way in private and a different way in public. No doubt churches need gifted men. No doubt. 
But more than that, they need godly men. And Paul is exhorting Timothy to be such a man, to be a godly man, to be an example to all. And here's the reality. Here's the warning that Paul knows about, he feels it, and that we need to know about and feel it as well, is that a man can preach the truth of the Word of God with his lips and then tear it down with his life, with his ungodly life. And even in the past ten years, just in our church culture, we've seen massive amounts of this stuff, of men, even young men, preaching reformed theology and reformed doctrine, dropping like flies over, over adultery, pride, disqualifying themselves from ministry. One side of their life is heralding the truth of the Word of God, and the other side of their life is tearing it down with their own hands. And Paul says, no, no, Timothy, life and doctrine. Life and doctrine. This gospel that you herald has to be undergirded by holy living. Holy living. This passage gives us two insights into how we go after this holy living. Into how we go after godliness and being an example. And this is the stuff that's applicable to every follower of Christ. We must be godly. And we need to know how to pursue godliness. And that's what this text is instructing us with. First, notice in verse 6 that Timothy is to be trained in the words of the faith. Timothy is to be trained in the words of the faith. Now, the word translated trained in the ESV is actually better translated as with the word nourished. And, and other English translations actually translate it exactly that way. It's better translated nourished, not trained. This is a different word than the word that we're going to talk about in a minute in verse 7. Okay, And so get that there, that Timothy is being nourished in the words of the faith. And then this is, this is in the present tense in the Word of God, that this is something that is ongoing continually happening in Timothy's life, that he's being nourished in the words of the faith. He's a self-feeder in the Word of God. He's a self-feeder in Scripture, continually. So I want to make sure we understand this. That phrase is not talking about Timothy's godly upbringing that he had from his believing mother. Okay? He did have that godly upbringing. This phrase is not talking about that. Neither is this phrase talking about the discipleship that Timothy received from the Apostle Paul. He did receive that discipleship from the Apostle Paul. This is not what this phrase is talking about. This is something ongoing in Timothy's life. This is referring to, listen, his ongoing, habitual, personal feeding on the Word of God. What we would call our devo his devotional life. His devotional life. You want to know the secret of godly character? Start right here. It always is shaped and formed and fashioned in the secret life. This is where we grow in godliness. Not where other people are around us, you know, watching us. We grow in godliness in the secret place first. And this is, this is the requirement. He, he will be a good servant if he's continually being nourished on the words of the faith. 
on the words of the faith. Uh, Listen to how this is described in Proverbs 8. Timothy is a Proverbs 8 man. And here's what I mean. Proverbs 8 verse 34 says this, Blessed is the one who listens to me watching daily at my gates. Watching daily at my gates. And so here's a rhythm of living that godly men and women have learned. That daily they express their dependence to God and they're meditating on the law of the Lord day and night. Watching daily at the gates of wisdom. Meditating day and night on the Word of God. Not to preach sermons first, but to feed their own soul. To get their soul happy in the Gospel. Happy in Jesus Christ. This is important. There's a principle here that godly pastors, they don't just study the Bible to preach sermons. They study the Bible first and foremost to nourish their own souls. That might sound like a small principle, but that changes everything. That a man of God who proclaims the Word of God is supposed to do it from this place of fullness in his life. That he's satisfied in the Gospel. His heart is full of Holy Scripture. And from this place of fullness, he preaches the Word of God. This is the rhythm. This is the rhythm. Brothers and sisters, don't get caught in the trap of going to your Bibles for the sole reason of having something to say at Bible study or something to disciple uh, other people with. And, and, And I'm not talking you down from those things at all. But don't go to Scripture merely or mainly for those things. Go to the Bible first and foremost to love the Lord your God. To, to, wait, to wait daily at the gates of wisdom to feed your soul in the Word of God. And that's our exhortation from this little phrase, is that we would make it our daily aim to get our souls full of the Word of God, and from that place, preach that Word to others. And this is the rhythm in Timothy's life. Listen to Colossians chapter 3. The same rhythm for every believer. Colossians 3, verse 16. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Next phrase. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. That's the order right there. Full of the Word of God first, teaching others second. And Timothy will be a good servant if he's a lifelong student of the Word of God. If if his love doesn't grow cold for Holy Scripture. So this is one one of the secrets, one of the principles of growing in godliness. And notice the second one in verse 7. Timothy is to train himself for godliness. Paul uses an athletic metaphor here. Athletic imagery. This comes from the Greek Olympic Games. So Paul singles out these elite athletes in this first century culture. And he, and he uses this word picture as a metaphor for the Christian life. The word here, the Greek word is gumnazi. Gumnazi. And you can just, just in hearing that, this is, this is where we get connotations of the word gymnasium. And that's the idea here. Okay, Is that Paul is calling Timothy to work out, to exercise, to labor, to exert himself. And this is one of the things that we have to know about growing in godliness. 
And really, it doesn't take very long living the Christian life before you realize, man, you know what? I don't move forward automatically. I don't become more godly automatically, more believing, more trust in Jesus Christ, more godly character. This stuff doesn't happen automatically. It happens, sanctification happens through effort, through effort, through spirit-empowered effort. And that's the imagery here. Like an elite athlete, we are to train. We are to be dedicated. This is intense stuff, right? You watch these little pictures of uh, Michael Phelps or elite uh, marathon runners or sprinters. And, and, you know, one of the things that's consistent all across the board is that everything in these people's lives is bent towards this one goal. It's not a hobby that they have. It's everything in their life is bent in this direction. And that's how Paul is exhorting Timothy. Train for godliness like that. Let it be your one aim in this world to move forward in Christ-like character and godliness. So he's to, he's to make progress through tremendous effort. Tremendous effort. And then look at the, the motive that's mentioned in verse 8. Bodily training, why, why should we do this? Bodily training is of some value, but godliness is of value in every way. In every way. Now this is the faithful saying that's mentioned in verse 9. It looks back to verse 8. And this is a maxim. This is a principle. It's like a proverb. And I want us to consider it this morning. The proverb is about the profitability of godliness. So consider this. Consider this contrast. Paul is contrasting the profitability of physical exercise with the limited profitability of physical exercise with a limitless profitability of training in godliness. So I want you to consider that. Bodily training is good, some good, for this life only. For this life only. It can do two things. It can improve your quality of life and maybe, maybe, you know, add a few years to your life. You know, if you're not pounding cigarettes and, you know, eating cake every day, maybe you, you live longer. But that's all it can do. This life only. And, and another way to say that is this. That the very moment you die, all the benefits and profitability of physical exercise and physical health expire at the moment of death. And they help you no more. No more. Can't take them past. The, the things that they give you can't take them past death. And then Paul contrasts that with the profitability of training in godliness. Training in godliness is, is, has value even into eternity. In fact, it's training for eternity. Training in godly character, like God, like Jesus Christ. Partaking of the nature of Christ. Limited profitability versus limitless profitability. Limited versus limitless. Now, one of the things that we ought to be aware of in our culture that has gone slam crazy for all things health and fitness... Okay, 
is I'm not saying that you shouldn't, you know, steward and take care of your body. I'm not saying that at all. But one of the things I am saying from this maxim is don't you dare be caught guilty of putting more effort in your physical body than growing in godliness. Please don't do that. It's eternally backwards. Do you see? Do you see? If you're putting more effort in the treadmill than you are in Holy Scripture, you got it backwards. You got it backwards. Godliness is profitable for all things, now and eternity. Now and eternity. And I want to exhort us from this maxim to train for eternity. Train. Exert yourself. Train for it. Strive for it. And if that thought is coming in your mind right now, I'm too busy to do that. Well, listen, if you're too busy to train for godliness, you're too busy. Train for godliness. Train to live forever with Christ. Paul commands that we train. He says in another place that we should press forward in our walk with Christ. He says in another place that we should run the race in such a way as to win the prize. And not only Paul, the Apostle Peter tells us uh, the same thing with a little different words. He tells us, make every effort. Make every effort in your relationship with Christ to be a godly man or a godly woman. Here's the language of Proverbs. Seek it like hidden treasure. If somebody offered you $10 million right now, you know what kind of zeal would pop up all across this room? I want to find that stuff. Somebody told you there were $10 million hidden in your house. Your house would look like a tornado hit it before noon today. Exerting yourself. Exerting yourself. And that's how we want to seek after Christ-like character. And we're reminded that this effort that we give towards godliness, it's not meaningless, it's profitable. It makes a difference. It's profitable. And you'll regret a hundred things on your deathbed that you've done. But one thing you will never regret is every single effort you made to grow in godliness. And this is the exhortation to this young pastor that he would be this godly example to the flock of Jesus Christ. Second thing Paul admonishes Timothy to be is an expositor of the Word of God. An expositor of the Word of God. We already mentioned this in verse 6. He says, put these things before the brothers. But we come to verse 13, and Timothy receives what is probably okay, the clearest description of preaching in the New Testament. He is to devote himself until the Apostle comes to three things. To the public reading of Scripture. To the exhortation. And to the teaching. To the teaching. Those three words describe all faithful handling of the Word of God. All faithful handling of the Word of God. The ESV translates this public reading of Scripture. Because that's exactly what the word means. Okay? This is not what, what a man does in private, though he does read in private. This is the public reading of the Word of God. Same word that's used when Jesus reads the scroll of Isaiah in Luke chapter 4. It's the public reading of Scripture. And so what's in view here 
is what Timothy does when the church is gathered together. When the church is gathered together. He is to devote himself to the public proclamation of the Word of God. And that proclamation always has these three legs on the stool. Okay, Reading, exhortation, and teaching. Reading, exhortation, and teaching. Let's start with the reading. Now, this seems so basic that it's almost like a throwaway word. Like, yeah, you, yeah, of course, read the Bible. You know, before you teach it, read the Bible. But listen, this one, this one little phrase, it actually tells us something very important about biblical preaching, about Timothy's job in Ephesus and a pastor's role. It tells us that Timothy is to focus his attention on some definite portion of Holy Scripture and then open it up. Then open it up. He tells him to read the text before he explains the text. And today, this is what we refer to as expositional preaching, which we understand as faithful preaching of the Word of God. Just like Ezra of old in Nehemiah 8. Read the text, give the sense of the meaning. Expositional preaching. Paul calls Timothy to a preaching that locates the sermon on a text of Scripture. Okay? This is not you know, a topical uh, buckshot sermon you know, where you're all over the place. Nobody has any idea what text you just anchored your sermon to. No, Timothy's job, stand before the people of God, read the text, explain the text, and apply the text. This is expositional preaching. And the encouraging thing for us is that this is not just a flavor um, that happens to be the flavor of the week in, in Calvinistic Baptist churches. Okay? This is apostolic handling of the Word of God. Read it, explain it, and teach it. Read it, teach it, and apply it. Expositional preaching, right out of the New Testament. Right out of the New Testament. Read the text. The second, uh, the second category here is the teaching. That he's to devote himself to the teaching. This is explaining what the text means. Just like Ezra, just like we referenced. Read the text, but listen, the Bible doesn't do any good unless you understand what it means. This is why for almost a thousand years, the church of Jesus Christ was plunged into darkness because they had worship services in languages that the people didn't even understand. It doesn't do you any good unless you hear it and understand it, unless you know what it means. And this is why one of the core convictions of the Protestant Reformation was to get the Word of God in the language of the people. Not in Latin, but in the common tongue, in the language of the people. Because they not only need to, need to hear the sounds coming out of the preacher's mouth, they need to understand what it means. Which is another bullet point for why preaching should be simple and clear. It should be simple and clear. Why? Because biblical preaching is good, and good preaching is not, man, that sermon was awesome. He used 50 words. I didn't even understand what they meant. You need to understand the Word of God. Teach the text. Read it and teach it. And this also gives you some parameters. That if you're to teach the text, that means you're not teaching your own words, but the Word of God. 
And that's one of the principles behind expository preaching is that pastors are supposed to handle the Scriptures in such a way that you know that they're not coming up with this stuff. It's coming right out of Holy Scripture. And all he's doing is opening it up. Opening it up. And then we come to this last word, the exhortation. The exhortation. And this is what makes preaching different than teaching. Okay? This is what makes preaching different than teaching is that word right there. And it reminds us that biblical preaching is not merely reading a text from Scripture and telling you what it means. Biblical preaching turns the corner and seeks to address the hearers and have an effect in the people of God. That's that word exhortation. It refers to the application of the sermon. And it's a broad word because God's Word calls us to many different responses. That Word can call you to worship. It can call you to conviction and confession of sin. It can call you to be comforted with the promises of the Gospel. It's a broadness. The exhortation. It's that turning in the sermon where we're reminded that these words, they're not locked in this first century audience. This is God's Word to us. The living God is addressing us. The exhortation. The word means a call. It's a call to respond. It's an appeal to the conscience. So think about this. Teaching addresses the mind, but the exhortation addresses the affections and the will of the hearers. And that's what biblical preaching does. You want your hearers to understand doctrine, but we're after, remember, the aim of our charge is love. And we want to preach that doctrine that produces godliness. The appeal to the conscience. The appeal to the affections and the will. And this is one thing that we could stand to remember in expository circles that true preaching is not merely informing. It's not merely informing your hearers. It's trying to affect men and women with the living Word of God. With the living Word of God. And our prayers, we stand here every week, is that you would walk out of this place not only that you learn something, maybe that you never heard before, but with your heart warmed, that you're, that you're comforted with the promises of the Gospel, that you are confronted with the majesty and the beauty of Jesus Christ. Exhortation. That's exhortation. Jonathan Edwards said it this way, that he intentionally addressed the affections of his hearers. He says this, I should think it my duty to raise the affection of my hearers as high as I possibly can, provided that they are affected with nothing but the truth. With nothing but the truth. Exhortation is not about manipulation and whipping the church up into a frenzy. Exhortation is about you understanding the beauty, the majesty of the Gospel and giving God praise and glory and honor. And Jonathan Edwards says, I want to do that as high as I possibly can. John Piper tells the story that when he was called to preach, 
At the time he was called to preach the gospel, he was a seminary professor in Minnesota. And he recounts that his call to preach the Word of God (coughs) came with these words burned into his heart. Listen to it. I, the God of Romans 9, will be heralded and not just analyzed or explained. God will be heralded, not just explained. So I want you to understand that. That's the difference in exhortation and teaching. John Piper was already teaching seminary classes. He was already given daily academic lectures, but God called him to preach. God called him to be a herald of the Gospel. Like a trumpet shouting the glory of Jesus Christ in the church. God called him to preach the Word. Preach the Word. Not just explain it, but to exhort. To exhort. Now when these two things meet, the teaching and the exhortation, and they come right out of the text of Scripture, teaching, exhortation, right from that passage that He just read to us, that's where the power is in the church of Jesus Christ. That's the bullseye that you aim for when you handle the Word of God. That I want to say what God says, and I want this text to do what the Spirit of God intends to do with these God-breathed words. The teaching and the exhortation. This is the thunder and the lightning of biblical preaching. The teaching and the exhortation. John Piper calls this expository exaltation. That we're explaining the Word of God, but we're worshiping the God of the Word. Expository exaltation. And my favorite description is by Martin Lloyd-Jones, who calls um, this twofold, uh, when they meet together, he calls it logic on fire. Logic on fire, that a man is saying what God says in Holy Scripture, but he's full of passion and zeal and sincerity for the people of God. He's, he's logic on fire, teaching and exhorting. Verse 14 reminds us that this ability to preach the Word of God, this is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul reminds Timothy that he received this from the Spirit of God. Yes, it was affirmed by the church, but it came from the Spirit of God. And we need this reminder, okay? In the strictest sense, you know, even I'm guilty of this language. And I certainly understand what many mean when they use it. When we talk about raising up leaders. Well, I want to remind us from verse 14 that in the strictest sense, the church of Jesus Christ can't raise up leaders. The Holy Spirit does. And what the church does is come beside these men that the Spirit of God is raising up with the gift, the spiritual gift of preaching and teaching the Word of God. And the church comes beside them and affirms them and spurs them on in this work. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. And what that means is we have preaching in the category of of spiritual gift, not natural ability. Spiritual gift, not learn it mechanically. Okay, And so we see examples of this, especially in the Old Testament, where the Spirit of God would rush upon 
a man or a woman, and they would do mighty feats in the name of the Lord. That's what the Spirit of God does when He empowers the work. You think about Samson, okay? Spirit of God rushes upon Samson, and what happens? He picks up a jawbone of a donkey and does work. And does work thousands of times over. Supernatural feats that far exceed his natural abilities. This is what it means to be anointed, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And one of the things we need to be freshly reminded of is that the Spirit of God can come on preaching like He came on Samson. Spiritual gifts, anointing and power of proclamation. The Puritans used to refer to this as unction from the Holy Spirit. And we need more of that. Unction from the Holy Spirit. Had somebody send me a text this morning and said, praying for you, brother. And then he said, may God arise and scatter His enemies. And we need to view the preaching moment like that. That this is the moment where the Spirit of God empowers some to proclaim the Word of God, the majesty of God, the glory of God, and the enemies of God are scattered. Praise the Lord. Preaching is not a mechanical thing. It's a gift of the Spirit. And Paul tells us in verse 14 that this gift can be neglected. That you can have a spiritual gift and you can neglect it. And he tells Timothy, don't do that. Don't neglect this gift that is in you. And in fact, he tells them that this gift is so important for him to faithfully administer, it's so important for the health of the church, that Paul commands Timothy in verse 15 to give himself totally to the public preaching of the Word of God. Look at what he says in verse 15. He says, practice these things. NAS says, take pains in these things. Other translations say, be devoted to these things. This is to be Timothy's preoccupation. That he, is, that he eats, sleeps, and breathes the public proclamation of the Word of God. Paul goes on to say that Timothy is to be in them. That he is to be immersed in the public preaching of the Word of God. That's how important this is for the church. That pastors are totally absorbed. It's not a hobby that they do on the side while they do all the other important things. They are to be totally absorbed with heralding and proclaiming and preaching the Word of God. And we have this one little phrase in verse 15, one little word, that's a great encouragement to anybody that's ever preached the Word. And that word is progress. Paul tells Timothy that to give yourself to these things so that all may see your progress. And that's a wonderful reminder to some of you who have a desire to preach the Word of God, to be a pastor for the rest of your life, that this spiritual gift can grow. It can increase. You can progress in it. It's something that you can give constant attention to and move forward to the great help of the church of Jesus. Final exhortation. Paul exhorts Timothy. He reminds him that he's an evangelist. That he's an evangelist. 
In verse 16, Timothy is told that if he persists in this living and preaching of the truth, that there's an outcome, that there's an expected outcome, that he will save both himself and his hearers. He will save both himself and his hearers. Now, Timothy in and of himself is saving nobody. Okay? Jesus alone does that. So what this phrase is letting us in on is that Timothy is the chosen instrument in the hand of the sovereign God. He's the instrument of salvation. Preaching is the instrument of salvation. Now that's no surprise because we're told that in many other places in the New Testament. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. Paul says, It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. To save those who believe. So the last, last verse we, we're going to deal with is verse 10 this morning. And verse 10 has this phrase, that we labor and we toll. Verse 10. This is what we labor and toll for. Because we're the instrument. Between a lost world and a sovereign God, God gave us, the church, the gospel. We're the instrument in the hands of a sovereign God. And for this reason, we labor and we toll. And that's the description that the Word of God gives for our response to the lost world, that we ought to be laboring and toiling to get the gospel to those who don't have the gospel. Why? We'll talk about this more in a minute. How can they believe if they never hear? How can they believe if they never hear? Do you see how important preaching is? Do you see how much primacy it has in the church? Salvation itself is on the line if we don't preach, if we don't toil and labor in getting the message to the ends of the earth. Verse 10. We've ha we have set our hope on the living God. That's true of every Christian. Every Christian in the room this morning, you labor and toil for the lost world, at least you should be, because you set your hope on the living God. And what that means is that you have confidence that because Jesus died for you, that He was raised from the dead, and because He sits at the right hand of God and makes intercession for you, you have confidence that He will save you on the day of wrath. You have set your hope on the living God. On the living God. And our desire is that every single person would know that same hope. Would know this living God that you know. That they would set their hope on the living God. That they would know the living God. We desire that all people embrace the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And what's our message that we take to the world? Well, we have this summary in verse 10. Who is our God? Who is He? He's the Savior of all people. 
That's the good news of the gospel. Our God is not this uh, little bitty village God, right? He's not the savior of a certain generation or a certain country on planet Earth. Our God, who is he? How good is this good news? He's the savior of all people. He's the savior of all people. And that announcement reminds us that there's no boundaries to the gospel. There's no boundaries to the good news of Jesus. All the boundaries, all the distinctions have been removed. This is what makes the good news so glorious. That it's for all people. God is the Savior of all people. No categories can disqualify you from salvation. And let's give attention to some of these. One of the things that this means is that your race cannot disqualify you from the good news of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not just for some races on planet Earth. It's for all people. This is who your God is. is he's the Savior of all people. No, no, no classes are excluded. No classes are excluded. You know, another thing that this means is no genders. You know, God is not just the savior of men. <laughs> He's the savior of all people. He's the savior of women. He's the savior of all. That's what the phrase is supposed to dislodge in our minds is any attempt to make the gospel uh, this little bitty thing. This little bitty thing. And I'll just mention a couple of the sneaky ways that unbelief distorts this truth that Jesus Christ is the Savior of all people. One is age. That we are prone to believe that there's this certain age where people respond to the gospel and then once you're outside of that age, the time to respond has passed you by. And listen, here's the good news this morning. Our God is the Savior of all people. You might be a 70-year-old man in the room. And you might be tempted this morning to believe that the time to respond and the time to get right with God has passed you by forever. That you squandered it forever. But here's the message of the gospel. No, no. It's not just for young people. He's the Savior of all people. See how glorious that is? He's the Savior of all people. And let me also apply this to the young people in the room this morning. If you are a young child at Grace Community Church, I want to ask you for just a minute, okay, stop coloring, stop looking around, and for just a minute, I want you to listen to me, okay? Raise your hand if you're a kid under 12 in the room, just so I know you're listening, okay? You will be tempted to believe differently than what the Word of God says. Here's what the Word of God says. Please remember this. Talk to mama and daddy about this on the way home. The Word of God says that our God is the Savior of all people. Listen, not just older people. He's the Savior of all people. Do you know what this means for you? If you're five years old, or maybe you're seven, or maybe you're nine years old, is that our God is the Savior of little bitty children. He's not the Savior of some people. 
He's the Savior of all people. And I want to encourage you to believe that this morning. You don't have to wait till you get older to put your trust in Jesus Christ because He's the Savior of all people, even little children. Even little children. And one of the things we need to be praying for as a church is, Lord Jesus, will you exalt yourself in this local church as the Savior of all people? Do you know that our God is able to save little children? Do you know that about our God? And we're not talking about this fuzzy, hey, mom and daddy are going to go to heaven. Do you want to go to heaven too? Uh, pray the prayer. And, and, and you'll be, we're not talking about that. We're talking about our God is able to bring little children under conviction of sin and sincere trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. He's the Savior of all. Be very careful that you don't just make him the savior of some. I'll give you one other example that unbelief comes against the glorious gospel. Is that some will be tempted to believe that he can only save you from certain types of sins. And if you commit this certain type of sin, you can't be saved. And every time you think about it, the condemnation can rush over you. I will never be saved for what I've done. You know, common examples of this are abortion. Once I do this, I'm unclean forever. Or homosexuality. Once I practice this, I'm unclean forever. Or adultery. Once I commit this sin, I can never be forgiven. And listen, let the gospel pound on this this morning. He's the Savior of all people. Savior of all people. And I'll testify to the grace of God in this local church that every one of those examples, the power of Jesus Christ to save has been demonstrated at this local church. Such were some of us. But He's the Savior of all people. He's the Savior of all people. Gospel's not this little bitty thing. When Jesus was born, the announcement went something like this. It is good news. Of great joy for all people. Good news, great joy, all people. This is our God. And that little phrase tacked on the end of verse 10. Especially those who believe. Are namely those who believe. Reminds us this is not some automatic universalism. That the ones who are saved by the finished work of Christ are those who put their trust in the Lord Jesus. He's the Savior of all. Everyone anywhere on planet earth that puts their trust in Christ, He's the Savior. He's the Savior. And brothers and sisters, this is where we come in. This is why we cannot stop preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ because salvation depends on it. Salvation depends on it. Romans 10, final words. How are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word today. God, we ask for light. We ask for light, Lord, that you would be pleased to instruct our minds this morning. God, we ask for glory, God, that you would fill our hearts with nourishment as we leave this place today. Lord, be faithful to the preaching of your word. God, use our weak service for the glory of your name. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.